0: Hi and welcome to the RCH Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician here at the RCH and I'm joined by my colleague and good friend Dr. Margie Danchin. Hi Anth. Today we've got a really interesting topic and that's understanding gender. Can't wait to talk about it. From the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info podcast. So up to 2% of Australians identify as transgender or gender diverse and it's really quite common and typical even for children to experiment with gender roles. Many parents have experienced this. It might be, for example, you know, a little boy wanting to dress up in girls' clothes or put on makeup. But sometimes this is much more complicated than that sort of situation and there might be children that are actually struggling with their gender um, and in that space where we think of gender diversity...
1: Yeah, that's right, Anthe, and children can really experience what's known as gender dysphoria, which is what you really just described, that sense of perhaps distress or difficulties and questioning their their gender identity. And here at the Royal Children's Hospital, we have an incredible gender service to support children and young people who are experiencing some of these difficulties. And so joining us today to talk about gender in kids uh, and the complexities that can arise for some children and families is Adolescent Physician and Head of the Gender Service, Associate Professor Michelle Telfer. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks, Margie and Anthea.
0: Great to have you here today Michelle. So we will hear a bit more about what you do at the gender service um, a bit later on when we're talking but I think what would be really helpful to start with is to talk about what gender actually is. So what do we mean when we talk about someone's gender?
2: Yeah gender is is a really intense inner feeling about whether you see yourself as a male, female, both, neither or somewhere in between.
0: And so it's different from the concept of a sex or, you know, what you might biologically, if you like, um, genetically be programmed to be. That's right. So when
2: we're born, we all have a physical body that is generally assigned to be either male or female. Sometimes there are variations on that too. But generally speaking for trans young people and trans uh, adolescents and and adults, the sex they were assigned at birth doesn't align with the gender that they feel themselves to be on the inside.
0: Okay. And so can you talk to us a bit about how that might um, be for children, like how that might show up or what parents might notice around that?
2: When children are really young, when they start to express who they are as people, whether that's through their language or through their preferences for clothing or play, their friends and so forth, they start to express themselves often with um, gender being a part of that. And if they're able to express themselves freely and um, they're encouraged to be themselves, generally they're very happy and unaware that um, it's not necessarily within uh, what society's normal expectations are for them.
1: And in fact, Michelle, that can happen from quite an early age, can't it? Like have I've certainly had um, parents tell me that their child has expressed their gender um, different to their assigned sex from, you know, as early as two or three years.
2: Absolutely. Um, we've had parents approach us for assistance for two and a half year olds, mm.
1: where it's
2: very clear that they're expressing themselves in a way that the parents didn't expect, and the parents feel quite worried about that. And we've just done an audit looking back on the last 10 years of families who have come to the Royal Children's, and most parents looking back in retrospect said that they could see signs of gender-diverse expression in their child from an average age of three.
0: Wow. So can be really young. So lots of young children experiment with kind of gender roles, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go on to have difficulties with identifying with their gender what's normal or what's typical and you know what is a range of things that you can expect to see in typical kids
2: well it's very typical as you said to express your gender in different ways and to kind of find out who you are in the world by trying different things and you'll see especially with uh, kinder and early childhood services that children Uh, really express themselves in all sorts. Yeah, they dress up and, you know,
1: there's all sorts of ranges of, of, you know, ways that kids can express themselves without definitely sort of strictly sticking to being, you know, male or female.
2: That's right. And certainly not all of uh, the children that express themselves in a way that we don't expect are going to be trans or gender diverse. Very far from it, that it's typical to have that behaviour. But there's a small number of kids, as you said, about 2%, who won't just express themselves in, in in an expansive way, but will actually say, "I'm a boy or "I'm a girl," or "I'm not a boy or a girl," and be really strong and determined. so they'll be insistent that everyone else is um, is referring to them in a way that doesn't fit with who they feel they are, and they'll also be persistent with that. So mm. what what we tend to see is those uh, the children who, as I said are really determined to assert themselves in a way that is is definite is insistent is persistent and then when they end up in a gendered environment like a primary school where they have to choose certain uniforms or they'll be assigned into lines for various activities in boys or in girls that's when you start to see the distress mm. and they'll say I don't want to stand in the boys line I'm not a boy I'm a girl so it's it's a whole nother level of identity and it's not just about um, being uh, a tomboy or being a boy who's um, expressing themselves in a feminine way it's an it's much more intense
1: And Michelle, to what degree does the environment influence that sort of behaviour or those choices? I know parents have said to me, well, you know, if their child is experiencing difficulties, you know, did, did we do something or have we created this conflict for this child?
2: After working with families for many, many years now, I guess the conclusion that I've come to, and this is backed up by the research, is that. Other people can't influence your gender identity in terms of who you are innately. Deep down inside, you are who you are. But the environment can change how we express who we are. So if you're a child in an environment that's really secure, that's safe and um, is supportive, then... These young people tend to be able to express themselves freely, they're happy and they um, have great uh, mental health outcomes and achieve what they are able to achieve. For those that are environments where there are very strict rules around gender expectations and how they need to behave, then what you'll find is some of these young people become quite distressed and withdrawn and often struggle with... um, things like depression and anxiety. So from my belief is that the best way to support our children is to let them express themselves freely and to go from there.
0: We've got a really interesting question related to that actually from um, Katerina. Perhaps we can listen to that now. Hi there. This is Katerina. I have a question for Dr Michelle Telfer about gender. I've heard a bit about Gender creative parenting and not gendering your child when it's born but letting them express themselves in many ways and seeing what happens and I'm just wondering what Dr Telfer thinks
2: of that approach. Thanks Katerina that's a fantastic question. I think one of the important aspects of gender is that gender is really important it is something that means a lot to all of us and so What is often, um, I think, misconstrued is that having gender diversity as being an acceptable concept is that somehow we're trying to remove gender Mm. and to um, minimise gender. But I have the sense from the trans young people I look after, actually, how important gender is. And it's just that your gender needs to match who you feel you are as a person so whilst it's absolutely fine to bring a child up in um, in an environment great to bring your child up in an environment where they can freely express themselves but allowing them to assert their gender and following that lead around their gender is also important so if they are expressing that they feel that they are a boy or a girl allow them to be a boy or a girl.
0: I think that's really important, isn't it? Because there's a tendency for us perhaps to think we have to neutralise everything, that you know we don't want to see these gender roles and that in some way they might be damaging. But actually what you're saying is really different from that. It's about letting a child or, or a young person or an adult, in fact, understand what they see as their gender, identify with that and then express it in a way that they feel comfortable and safe. That's exactly right and for
2: for boys, um, in our society these days, it's a it's a recognition that you can be a strong male and still be empathic and mm, uh, yes. to enjoy um, activities that are some you know considered feminine in some way.
1: Michelle, can I ask? Um, a person's gender identity is quite different from their sexual orientation.
2: This is something that often gets mixed up, and it's really important to understand that they're two very separate concepts. gender identity is about how you feel yourself as a person and sexual orientation is who you're attracted to in others so um, a person can be trans or cisgender which is um, a term we often use as someone who's not trans and you can be trans or cisgender and uh, be attracted to males females both neither.
0: And I think because we um, try to be inclusive with diversity, sometimes all of these things get rolled into one big you know box, but in fact they are very different concepts. The way we approach them and how we're respectful about diversity is similar for both issues, obviously, but they they're very much different things.
2: Absolutely, and when we're talking to young people about this in a clinical sense, we'll often ask about sexual orientation, but we'll use the terms are you attracted to boys, girls, both or neither gender or other genders and we ask in that way um, to provide a free space for them to talk about who they might be attracted to but we'd only ever ask it really in in the context of trying to provide health advice whether it's contraception or pregnancy, fertility planning, that sort of thing in the older adolescents Mm. who are coming to us who are um, really wanting to talk about these issues because they're important for them.
1: Yeah, And I'm sure some parents listening would sort of perhaps be feeling, oh gosh, this is so confusing, you know, and just perhaps stepping back from the needing to label um, and, and just letting them be themselves, you know, express their gender and express their sexual orientation without needing to jump on a label. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely agree with that, that labels aren't... Imp- not helpful. It's, they're not helpful. No. They're not helpful. And there are the terminology uh, that is, is used changes so quickly over time, and it's hard for people to feel that they can keep up with the language that people find acceptable for them. And it's really important too not to hold back in asking questions mm. and being afraid of getting it wrong. If... I mean, I work in the gender service and I do this on a day-to-day basis and sometimes I get it wrong too. And if you've got an open mind and a manner which allows people to say, actually, I'd prefer you didn't use that term for me. That doesn't um, fit with how I feel or who I am. Um, And you can say, I'm sorry, what term would you like me to use and move forward from there? Um, Generally speaking, it allows a really free conversation that's helpful for everyone.
1: Yeah, and I think we're also seeing a lot more commonly now, which is fabulous, the use of pronouns um, in in meetings and and in conversations and people expressing their pronouns, which I think is great. What I mean by that is people saying, you know, she, her or they, them.
2: Yeah, pronouns are a very... important way that people use to express their gender. And when people refer to someone with the wrong pronouns, it can be really distressing and offensive to them, especially if it's done in some kind of deliberate way. But we often try and create a really safe space for people in, in meetings, for example, and when we're, when we've got people together and having someone's pronouns displayed creates a safe space, Mm. normalises the fact that we all have pronouns and that we all find it important in conversation to refer to each other in a way that is appropriate in terms of our gender. Um, And having them, say, in a Zoom meeting after someone's name provides a a space for everyone to have their pronouns present and for everyone to get it right.
0: You know what I'm hearing, Michelle, is that Lots of people might find this confusing. Some of it's very new, but at the end of the day if we're respectful in the way we go about approaching things and open-minded in communicating with people that we'll we'll probably get it right or close to right. Absolutely. Perhaps we can think a bit more about the concept of gender dysphoria. So that's a, an interesting word and term in itself. So I'll ask you perhaps to start by explaining what that means and how this is different from you know a, a spectrum of diversity.
2: Dysphoria is really a medical term that describes distress that occurs in relation to someone's gender and the incongruence between their gender identity and their sex assigned at birth. And whilst... Um, Gender dysphoria is something that we we focus on uh, when we're trying to provide care for young people who come to see us. Lots of trans people don't actually have distress and dysphoria if they're really well supported and can live in a way that is comfortable for them. So our, our role, I guess, as clinicians is to reduce this distress. And there are various ways we can do that. And for some young people, we can reduce their distress by allowing them to use their preferred name or the correct pronouns, for example, or allowing them to wear the clothing that they want to wear or that they feel comfortable with school uniforms Mm. And, and so forth. It's such a negative term, gender dysphoria, mm. because it is it is about distress, and distress makes us all feel uncomfortable when we're focusing on that. It is really important to remember that many don't have the dysphoria. Mm.
1: And Michelle, how do children and young people express that distress? Uh, I'm sure that differs, you know, depending on the age of the of the child.
2: Yeah. So young children, when they're um, confined by social norms and when they're told to behave in a certain way that prevents them being themselves, they can express their distress by becoming angry or withdrawn or crying a lot and can sometimes be hard to work out what's going on. When young people are um, going through puberty, often the distress is very much more specific. So for example, if someone has been um, assigned female at birth, but they have a male gender identity. In our society in Australia, it's very acceptable for uh, for girls to attend school and wear shorts or pants and play footy and soccer and and just um, live as they would like to live. But if he, if a, a young person is in that situation and they start going through puberty and they start developing breasts, for example. There's a certain distress that comes with mm. that breast development that for, for a young trans person, a trans boy who's going through this, it's almost... Um, it's it's insufferable.
0: It's a bit like a, cri- a crisis, it's really. absolutely yeah. a crisis. It's outside of their control.
2: It's totally outside of their control. Um, it changes how the world uh, reacts to them and um, it changes how... That person is able to go about their daily life. And that's often when we see these young people present saying, I feel incredibly distressed. Mm. And often that can be associated with things like depression, anxiety, and.
1: And even further than that, potentially self harm, which is, you know, often when we see um, young people presenting at this time.
2: That's right. It's a really high risk time for mm. self harm. Mm. And um, unfortunately, also suicidal ideation and, and really feeling like I can't live in this way, like it's not tolerable for me. Mm. And I guess that's where we come in to provide a relief for
0: that distress. Yeah. We've got a question from a parent that would be good to listen to now. Hi, my name's Jason. I've got two teenage um, children. And my question is, if you're if you've got worries as a parent, that your child may be struggling with their gender identity, What what uh, what's the best way to go about asking them or talking to them about the issue? Have you got some advice or tips on how to approach that with your children? Thanks.
2: Thanks, Jason. That's a really great question. And it's important because talking about these issues is really difficult for parents and actually really difficult for young people too. Um, often they'll tell their friends and other people that they know about their gender concerns before they'll be able to approach their parents.
1: Yeah. And, of course, that's fear of how their parents might react or whether they will not, not accept them. And
2: Absolutely. And it's fear of rejection from yeah. the people they love the most. Yeah. So we can understand why parents are often um, one of the last to find out how a young person is feeling. My advice about asking questions is to ask pretty straight down the line um, in a really supportive and sensitive way. So I would also normalise it by saying something like, there's lots of uh, media at the moment or I've seen something on telly that talked about trans people, just wondering if that's a problem for you. And if you're comfortable asking your child or young person a question like that, um, they'll be comfortable talking to you about it and how they feel in response.
1: I imagine they would feel relieved that you've opened that door because it would be quite hard for the child to take that first step.
2: Yeah, and we find um, that young people have Fairly creative ways of informing their parents about how they're feeling. Um, that's not
0: just about gender either. No, just generally, that's true. I think, but yeah, I'm sure in this setting particularly.
2: Yeah, that's true. One of the common ways we find a, a young people will write a letter or a note mm-hmm. addressed to a parent and leave it on their on the pillow or the bed or in the kitchen um, for the parent to find it and. Mm. Um, uh, And I think it's the, as you mentioned, Margie, before, a fear of rejection from people who love them. And that can be a safe way.
1: And once you've had that conversation, and then as a parent thinking, well, obviously I want to help my young person, what is the next step a parent might take in terms of reaching out and getting some support for them, especially if they are particularly distressed?
2: The best responses um, a parent can make is to reassure their child that they love them unconditionally so if your response to that disclosure is to give them a hug tell them how much you love them tell tell them that it doesn't change anything in terms of how much you love them that will be the best start anyone could ever have yeah and all
1: just lack of judgment really
2: absolutely lack of judgment and um for many of, of, of those that we see, that first point of disclosure stays with that person for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And it is about expressing that, that feeling on an ongoing basis too. And also not assuming that you're gonna have the answers or that you're going to know what to do. I think the first step after reassuring them that everything's going to be okay in terms of the family is to say, What would you like us to do to Mm. help you? What do you need us to do? Because sometimes that young person, all they might need at that point in time is for their parents to know. Yes. And they might say, I'd really like it if you could use a particular name, for example. That might be all that they need and want at that point in time. But also, as you you mentioned, um, I guess the anxiety and the stress of telling their parents Yeah. Having that out can can often be all that they need to. Yeah.
1: Um, and I know a lot of parents say to me at that point uh, when they've had that conversation with their child, they're then conflicted about what they say to the rest of the family or friends and how do they manage that? And, you know, do you think that should be really dependent on what the child wants and, and have that conversation openly as well?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, I think it's important for the young person to feel a sense of control Mm. over the communication of their information.
1: Absolutely. And
2: some young people say, I'd like you to tell aunts, uncles, grandparents, Um, and so forth. And the parent can then go from there and assist. And potentially
1: use the the name that the child has now chosen to
2: change potentially to. And we... Again there's so many different there's no right or wrong way of doing it some young people want to do it themselves others find it easier if someone else does it I've had young people who have wanted to stand up at assembly yeah mm-hmm. and announce it to the school one fantastic story I had was a young person who had started at a new school and they did exactly that and I said how did it go and they said, actually, no one seemed to think it was a big deal. And I wondered if anyone was listening. So I wanted to go and say it again. <laughs> but really, everyone was just really accepting and thought, oh, yeah, that's kind of how it is. So it's it really depends on the person. It depends on the environment. Um, and... Actually, I must
1: say, Michelle, that is something that I've experienced also having these conversations with my own children. I've got four kids and I think children um, and young people are a lot more accepting than adults often. And and this isn't actually a big deal for them often.
0: Yeah, sometimes it is about recognising our own biases or discomfort and what role that's having in this whole interaction as distinct from what might be happening for your child or your young person. And sometimes for parents, and I imagine parents listening to this today some people might be thinking oh that all sounds so easy when you talk about the way to bring it up and you talk about how to react and how to respond and they may feel like they don't have those skills or that they're not in that place or that space to communicate in that way with their child so what would you say to parents who might be thinking about that how can they do this what sort of supports are there for them there's some fantastic
2: parent support groups in the community. Mm. I think the two main ones in um, Victoria, and they have national reach, is Transcend Australia. And the second organisation is Parents of Gender Diverse Children. Um, they both have websites. Um, they're both on the RCH Gender Service website. There are links there too, and they're very specific, looking um, to support parents and families, including siblings. Mm. Yeah. Um, there are other organisations for trans young people who specifically support the young person themselves. Yeah. Um, so minus eighteen is um, is a fantastic organisation that that does that, and there are places like space who also provide linkage and counselling and peer supports. And there are many, many others. I certainly couldn't name, more, name them all today. Um, but through the RCH Gender Service website, you can get links to all of those. Excellent.
0: I think this kind of leads into another question that was written in that I'll just read out um, now from Jessica, who said that uh, she's a parent of a young child, a four-year-old, who she feels appears to be transgender. And she says, we're desperate not to get this wrong We're trying to follow her lead, but we're worried about what the future holds for her. How would you address that question and comment from Jessica?
2: Well, my first thought with that, Aunt Thea, is that this child is very lucky to have supportive parents who are conscious that they could get it wrong and are wanting to do the right thing by the child. And focusing on what the child needs is the number one um, way of making sure that you're doing the best you can for them. And... I think the most protective uh, thing that a, that a parent can do is to keep that in mind, that, um, that children, uh, things will change over time. Letting them lead the way in terms of how they wish to be cared for is important. And recognising the signs that if they're really struggling, um, if they're having, uh, if you're starting to notice changes in their behaviour in terms of becoming withdrawn or very sad, that there are people like us here at the gender service who can provide some further assistance to them.
0: So that's a great point for us to then perhaps talk a bit more now, Michelle, about what you actually do at the gender service. How do you support, how do you treat, if you like, children who might be experiencing really significant distress, or that term dysphoria, in relation to their gender identity?
2: Most of what we do at the gender service is actually talking. (laughs) And whilst there may be some misconceptions about the gender service in terms of people think about hormone treatment and so forth, for the vast majority... What we do is focus on trying to improve a person's mental health and sense of well-being, which for the most part involves listening to them and reassuring them that however they may be feeling in terms of their gender, that they are normal and that we can support them to be whoever they are. So we don't direct anyone in terms of you need to do this or that we're there to help people make the right decisions for them.
1: But there's also a range of clinicians, aren't there, Michelle? Like it's a real team multidisciplinary approach. That's right. So we have a team of psychologists, of uh, paediatricians,
2: nurses. um, We have psychiatrists. We also have um, people in the extended team from from gynaecology um, and other nursing staff. So social work, speech pathology, there are are very many people in the multidisciplinary team. And we individualise care so that if someone really just wants to come in and explore how they're feeling through um, talking about it, then that's exactly what we provide. If someone is in that situation where they're going through puberty in the early stages or they're about to go through puberty and they've got this anticipatory anxiety about what that's going to mean for their life, then we have some medical options that we can use. One of those things is something called puberty blockers. Yeah, And puberty blockers are... Uh, medications that have been used in children for more than 50 years for other reasons. Um, I think that's
0: important, just sorry to interrupt you there for a minute, Michelle, but there's a sense that some of these things are new and experimental and people feel worried that, you know, they've not been tested before or they're medications that we shouldn't be trying out on children.
2: Mm, Well, the blockers have been used um, in other situations like precocious puberty, for example. So this is a totally um, unrelated condition to to what we're talking about today, but where a child may go into puberty very, very early for a reason. Another medical reason. That relates to their hormones
0: in a different way. Absolutely.
2: And we use exactly the same medications at the same doses for similar length of time, and they've been using that medication for more than 50 years. Okay. In terms of trans adolescents using puberty blockers, they've been used across the world for more than 20 years now, and in Australia, we've with the first young person who um, had access to puberty blockers did so um, uh, in 2004, so 17 years ago. And we've been using them consistently then. And the work uh, that we've done looking at outcomes through our research and our clinical evaluation shows that the young people who are supported in a way where their pu- puberty is suppressed. During that period of really high distress, they have much better mental mm. health outcomes. Mm.
1: And the other important thing to stress is that the puberty blockers are reversible, right? So then it's not a permanent treatment.
2: That's right. There is um, a reversibility with this. And we do have young people who come in and they're so distressed that they, they can barely talk about how they're feeling Mm. um, and they can't function they can't attend school and what we see is when we start the puberty blockers it gives them the space
0: and the time
1: to sort of breathe and
0: absolutely process what might be going on and I know I've had a patient in my care who was seen through the gender service who did that for a period and then actually um, felt much more comfortable with their uh, birth assigned gender and ultimately kind of went back to a decision to remain a boy and has continued on happily as a boy, but needed a period of about 18 months to actually take stock and understand what was happening and adjust to some of the processes that were happening for that person. Absolutely.
2: And there is um, uh, many examples of where puberty blockers have really given someone that capacity to explore freely.
1: And Michelle, perhaps also talk briefly about what the service doesn't do, because there's also a lot of concern around surgical procedures, for example.
2: Yeah, there's been some misinformation that's been put out there to say that people can just turn up and get hormone treatment and then we're doing surgery. It's not the case. Mm.
0: Really important to clarify that here today, I think.
2: Absolutely. So we don't do any surgery Uh, on trans young people at the Royal Children's Hospital. And the process for accessing hormone treatment takes a long time too, where um, firstly there's often a waiting list, so there's time before someone is seen um, by the nurse and then everyone sees a mental health clinician, a psychologist or psychiatrist and a paediatrician over many, many months before a decision is made in conjunction with that young person, family and all the clinicians of the multidisciplinary team. So it's a really complex, really thorough and comprehensive process that we go through with the family because they're important decisions and we want to get them right Um, and we want to make sure that Mm. we're improving lives in the best way that we can without doing any harm
0: I think we're incredibly lucky Michelle to have you and your service here at the RCH because this is clearly such a complex space it's something that with the way society is evolving and we're able to normalize diversity that people are coming forward and seeking help and having some amazing outcomes so before we finish up today and a big thank you for being here and talking with us yes, thank you so much Can you give us what you would say as a final message, I guess, to young people who might be listening or parents who might be listening who feel they have concerns, perhaps, about gender identity? What advice would you give them? I would
2: say that being a parent of a trans child or young person or being trans yourself is not something to be afraid of and certainly not something to be ashamed of, that it really is something to celebrate and to be proud. And I have to say in the 10 years that I've been working um, in this area, I've learned so much from the trans children and the families and I think we've all got a lot to learn from yeah. trans children and families and listening to them helps us to better understand ourselves. It helps us to understand the world that we live in um, and it also helps us appreciate just how quickly the world is changing and not to be afraid and that's got to be a good thing.
1: If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform and press subscribe. And if this episode has raised any concerns for you or your child, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14.
0: The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or
2: healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.